Hello, beautiful friends, and welcome to the Atypical Behavior Analyst, your place in space to hear conversational information about the science of behavior analysis. I am your host, Kelly, and welcome to episode 38. But before we jump in, here's some quick housekeeping. First off, we are ACE approved. So if you're listening for continuing education units, jot down the two keywords interspersed during the talk, and then take those over to our website, atypicalba.com, where you can purchase CEUs. And take a few seconds to cruise around the site to find additional resources for each episode and more information about our fantastic guests. Next, if you'd like to stay up to date with upcoming talks and live events, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Our live events are a fantastic time to hang out, learn, and interact directly with our guests, and our social media is a great way to get to know the podcast, so reach out and say hi. You can also rate and provide feedback on your favorite listening platform to help further our dissemination mission. Lastly, stick around after the talk to hear a preview clip from our next episode. All right, on to the good stuff. While there's plenty of discussion about the increase in autism diagnoses during the current and recent generation, we cannot forget that there's a generation of individuals, particularly female, who are overlooked. Depending on when a person receives a diagnosis, the changes and opportunities for that individual shift. So in this live talk, we're meeting with Sarah, who received her diagnosis of autism later in life. She'll discuss the difficulties she encountered while growing up and how practitioners can assist with spotting these issues earlier on and advocating for clients regardless of age and development. Autism disabilities look different for everyone, and it's imperative to remember to treat each individual as their own person, putting aside biases and stigmas that may come with a diagnosis. So grab your earbuds and tune in and get ready to further your learning with episode 38, Battling Diagnostic Stigmas, a discussion with Sarah Alford Hart. So yeah, welcome to Friday, Atypical Behavior Analyst. It's me and Sarah Alford Hart. I'm Kelly Tate, and it's going to be a really cool discussion. So even with just like the little bits of preliminary stuff, you know, going over, you know, diagnostic and like, how didn't people realize? So I'm excited to, to jump into this because I think, um, especially those who identify as female get just really passed over because there's such a gender construct with that of like, well, no, you're supposed to be demure and well-behaved, I think was one of the comments that I saw in a mm-hmm. reel this morning. Um, and yeah, and that's not really how it works. So um, yeah, I'm excited to have this talk. So welcome, everyone. Um, as usual, I'll have CE stuff at the end. So feel free. And we'll also kind of discussion um, about some other opportunities that are coming up too. But for now, I will stop talking. And Sarah, if you could kind of give a little bit of your story, your history, what you're doing now, and then we'll jump more into the the personal side of things. Yeah. So like she said, I'm Sarah Alford Hart. I um, am 34, I believe. Um, I was diagnosed with autism about two years ago, right? Kind of right when the pandemic was getting in full swing. Um, yeah, I know it's been a while now. And so, um, I've always growing up been diagnosed throughout my life with all of the different sort of collection diagnoses that, um, a assigned at birth, assigned female at birth um, people get. So depression, anxiety, OCD, ADHD, it's like Pokemon. I've collected most all of them. Um, but I finally arrived on the, um, autism diagnosis a couple of years ago. Um, and this was while I was taking my journey on being a disability advocate and kind of coming to terms with the fact that uh, ABA as the field was not as um, 
you know, helpful as I thought that it would be. And I was working on trying to learn how to reduce harm and work on it. And through that, I started working with other autistic advocates and was like, "Uh oh, (laughs) guess what? I am also autistic. And so, uh, yeah, that's been my journey. Like I said, um, I collected all those other diagnoses on the way. Some of them I've um, realized were just part of autism. Some of them were not. And I know we definitely will talk more about that. But right now I um, own my own ABA company. I've been a BCBA since 2017. And I started my own company in, in that year. Um, which I don't recommend doing starting as soon as you become a BCBA, but I was facing some um, issues at work that also would have been nice to know if I was autistic that we could definitely talk about. Kelly, write that down because I want to talk about that later. Um, (laughs) But I uh, started my own company because I had to and I've been doing ABA since 2017 there. I was a behavior tech for about five, six years before that. And I also have my own company called Nessie, which is Neurodiversity Emphasizing Support Services and Information, which does consulting and mentoring to autistic people, to autistic people's families, and to uh, professionals, especially in the behavior analysis field. And yeah, that's kind of me. I, I'm very bad at like giving, like talking about myself without direction, but I think I spat, spat out enough for Kelly to start from. That was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you. it's also, I think everyone's least favorite question. And I will ask everybody, tell me about yourself. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. well, what do you want to know exactly? Like, do you want me to go deep, dark and personal? Like, <laughs> or do you want fun stuff? So, I went to bed till I was eight. No, I... <laughs> But you know, <laughs> those things can happen. So that's true. It's it's okay if it happens. It's fine. We work through those things. Um, so yeah, there's kind of a lot that we that we can unpack. But I think let's start with kind of just the process of getting diagnosed, especially as an adult, and when you have, like you said, the pokeball of diagnoses already. So the doctor's looking at it. And there's some biases and some barriers that come with that and some judgments and preconceived notions. So um, you know, let's start with really, you know, as an adult, what did that process look like? And then we can go back and kind of revisit what childhood may have been different. Yeah. So originally I first started thinking, you know what, I am very similar to a lot of my clients because I work primarily with the autistic population and realized that I connected with them way more than anyone in my life. Uh, and so I started talking to, let's see. When was the first time I brought up autism? Probably back in like 2012, 2013, something like that, when I was really starting to go into um, getting a diagnosis of something. I knew something was going on. I'd already gotten the ADHD one in high school, and the anxiety and depression had sort of trickled in at some point during that. And I went to a psychologist and I went through I went through many psychologists throughout my life but this one's particularly she did CBT and so I was like okay behavioral that's cool because I'm in the behavioral field now and uh, I said do you think I might be I might have autism and she said no you're talking you clearly don't have autism 
you have friends, which I didn't at the time, but she was like, you have, you know, a friend and you talk and you, um, I can just tell you don't have that mannerism. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, she said, you have OCD. So that's where I collected my OCD one. And part of the, <laughs> one of the big reasons was I could not focus on her interviewing me with the OCD test because one of her five or six diplomas right behind her was crooked. And I finally was like, stop the interview. <laughs> I can't focus. Please fix that. And she was like, I got your diagnosis right there, honey. And so, but it, but it did make, did make sense. I did CBT for OCD for about a year and a half with her. I also did, um, she said, you know, I think that there's a social anxiety group that I'm doing that you should do with me, um, not as a practitioner, but as a, as an actual patient. And so we did a social anxiety group therapy, which is probably the weirdest experience I've ever had because it's a room of people who don't know how to be in a room of people. So that was super fun. So she gave me a social anxiety kind of diagnosis as well. And, um, you know, after a while, the CBT didn't really work out for a lot of the mental repetitions and things that I was doing, but it did work for a lot of the other like contamination and that type of stuff. So I eventually moved on from her, moved on through others. I was like, okay, it's not autism. It's OCD. Everything is OCD. My entire life became about OCD because that's what I do. And then um, a few years ago, or I guess two years ago, I was talking to these autistic advocates while we were working on trying to change the ABA field. And several of the women who I'd never talked to actual adult women with autism before were just, we were just in a chat talking about different things in my, in our, in our lives. And they were describing my life. And I was like, ah, uh, <laughs> that sounds very common and very exactly like me. And so very fortunately, I, and I can tell everybody right now, I had a huge privilege in this. I was able to save up enough money to talk to a doctor who specializes in adult women with, he says Asperger's, but you know, autism. Um, and he's out in California. So the only way I was able to do it was because COVID lifted the license restrictions during the time of COVID, they were able to Zoom with, he was able to Zoom with me. He did three sessions. Each of them cost $250. So that was almost $800 worth of, of paying for this, for this exam. But he was very thorough. He gave me an exam that I felt was um, not just like read the ADOS and then say, yeah, sure, whatever. Here's your um, diagnosis. He um, spoke to my mother on the phone about my childhood. Um, it was very thoroughly researched, which, you know, like, and my mom, of course, was like, he asked me all these things that I was like, oh, because my mom did not believe that I had autism. She was like, I did not raise an autistic child. That's ridiculous. But then she was like, okay, maybe I did raise an autistic child once he asked all of these. But yeah, so it was three sessions. It was the first session was talking just to me. The second, um, he had called my mom for a few minutes. And then we talked again, and he continued his questions. And the third one was him actually finishing up and then giving me the official diagnosis. So again, 
all of these little chips fell in place for me specifically because I had the money, because I had the means, because it was the time of COVID and there was a license restriction lift. And um, I don't think that I would have been able to ever get a diagnosis or to get one for a long time if that hadn't been just all those things fell in place. So that's kind of been my journey. And ever since then, you know, um, at least once a day, I say, huh, how did I not know? Every time I think about something, I'm like, how did nobody notice? So yeah, that's been my journey. Perseverance, man. It's yeah. And, and Naida, you talked last week about that too, of mm-hmm. just having to be persistent and push through because yeah, there's a lot of stigmas. There's a lot of barriers that go into it. And I find it really interesting that it was a male as a specialist. Um, yeah. yeah. So of course my curious brain goes, Hmm, I wonder in like who in your family that was important to you, you know, maybe right? had a misdiagnosis that would push you mm-hmm. this direction, especially like the, the being thorough and having an interview, like that's something that, you know, yes. we as BCBAs it was, do. it was validating. It was not like, he was just going to hand me this diagnosis because I needed it or wanted it or whatever. I told him and he probably realized that I was like having this, like I'm stuck on this fact that I, I need to know whether I really have it or you need to tell me I don't. And he was kind of like, well, look at that repetitious, you know, obsessive behavior. Fun. There's a little mark there for you. But um, yeah. So, and so the reason that I actually pursued official diagnosis that I think is a, a very important thing because I know a lot of people are not able to do that, even if they do have the funds and that kind of thing. It's just very difficult to do. And um, I like to mention that the autistic community accepts people who are self-diagnosed and and considers um, it validating and, you know, accepts that people have to self-diagnose themselves a lot of times. Um, But the reason that I chose to go ahead and save up the money and go for it was because I am in the ABA field. I was already speaking against a lot of the harms that ABA was um, perpetuating in the field. And I was starting to see that my fellow autistic people were getting attacked by BCBAs for, and, and they were saying, well, you don't really speak for anyone because you don't have a diagnosis. And so I felt that I would not be able to speak in my field about these things if I did not have Um, the official diagnosis because of my particular personality, which is 100% imposter syndrome. Um, I think that people who do speak up in this field who are self-diagnosed are the most courageous people I have ever met because I cannot imagine being like being able to do that or, or having to do that for a lot of people. But I do think that having the courage to speak up in this field that is very hell bent on telling people, I don't think you're diagnosed. So I think that you're faking it or you have something else or whatever. I think it's, it's, it's just really brave to actually come out and say that. I think um, I was, I was at Naida's uh, speaking engagement last week and, and just, you know, in awe of, of the fact that like she comes and speaks Um and, and I, you know, I did not have the courage to do that. I needed that piece of paper to validate myself and to be able to prove to people like, hey, I really do have a voice here. And it's so frustrating that we can't and we mm-hmm. don't trust other people and we don't trust yes. them to know themselves. 
you know, like um, I wanted to, you know, ask about your your parents and kind of what their thoughts were when you were growing up. And like you answered it beautifully with, you know, they they didn't know. No, and no, my parents. And I can tell you a lot about my parents, actually. Um, my family, everybody who meets my family just thinks that we I, I've, I've heard it. Leave it to Beaver family. That's what everybody assumes my family is. We are like the Von Traps or the Leave it to Beaver family. We sing. We perform. We do ridiculous stuff. Okay. So when I started being quirky and doing all these crazy things, my family was like, yeah, let's do it. Let's get into it. Whatever she's into, we're into. And I always think back to when I was 11 and 12, I was obsessed with the musical Phantom of the Opera. Like it was my life. Okay. I fell asleep every night listening to the album on repeat. Everything I said was a quote from it, <laughs> scripting, by the way. But um, I basically just fell in love with it. Hardcore could not get outside of Phantom of the Opera as part of my life. Painted my, well, part of my family's thing was my mom, who um, was an artist. Well, not professionally, but she's an artist, um, painted my room like a French chateau. She paint like hand painted all of the cabinets that had like French words on them. And all, I mean, she went all out with it. And when the movie came out, she, my family threw a Phantom of the Opera costume party for me because they knew I would love it took our garage and decorated it like a labyrinth, served French food. She sewed my costume. It was ridiculously over the top. We did karaoke. We did all this stuff. My my brother wore a top hat and sang All I Ask of You with me, which if you don't know, that's like a romance song. It was weird, but whatever. I don't care. Anyway, my family did not realize I was autistic because they just full-fledged whatever my brother and I were into completely went off at the deep end with our special interests and made it more than I could have ever imagined. And so when I think about parents saying, you know, what could I do to connect with my child, find their special interest and just absorb yourself in it. My family became Phantom of the Opera specialists. And then a few years later, they fell in love with Wicked, uh, which is another musical. And then when I stopped loving musicals, now um, I have these Asian ball jointed dolls that I'm like super obsessed with. Um, and my mom, I went home about six months ago and she had sewn a little dress for my dolls. So she pulled out her sewing machine and started sewing. So they're still doing these things. And so my mom never realized that I was different. Because in my family, uh, we weren't. I wasn't really different. We were all very quirky. I don't think, I think my dad could have some traits, but I think he has more um, of this sort of anxiety and the obsessive compulsive kind of um, area. But again, not going to judge. He may, you know, be on the spectrum with me, but um, we all have different, different types of anxiety and all that thing. And, and my parents did the best they could with the knowledge they had at the time. When I was three, I was toe walking, which again, toe walking is one of those things. But back then they didn't know. And my mother um, put me in ballet classes because she thought I wanted to be a ballerina. So um, that's the way that they dealt with it. Oh, you're doing this thing. Great. Let's make it hardcore. Decorated my entire room with ballerinas. Everything I did was ballet for six years, you know, and then 
13 years later, I said, I hate ballet now and I don't want to do it anymore because I lost that special interest. And she said, all right, take all the ballerinas down, paint all the French stuff. So yeah, that's a little bit of insight into my parents and my growing up um, and why I did not get any kind of help or diagnosis. So I mean, and the, and the tough thing now is schools have changed so much. Um, oh, and like gosh, you've mentioned, yes. like the, the knowledge that we have now is so much different than it was like in the eighties and nineties, you know, it was, they were, they were the quote unquote weird kid in class. Um, yeah. We didn't have a name for it. And, you know, I look back now and I was like, oh, that's mm, okay. Yeah. That makes so much more sense. And it was tough because they were typically ostracized. They weren't popular. And so, you know, I, I, get curious every now and then and go, you know, I wonder what happened to them. I wonder where they ended up in life Um, because it wasn't a thing that was talked about. And now that it is, and now that's why it's so important that we actually do listen because we've got two kind of distinct generations going on. We've got the generation of individuals who we didn't have education or knowledge, you know, the diagnosis wasn't there, wasn't as readily talked about. Um, And now it's, it, it, it's it's prevalent. Um, mm-hmm. And so we get to see and hear both voices of, hey, if I had had these kind of supports growing up, you know, this would be so much easier for me. Like life wouldn't, it wouldn't suck. Um, yes. But we also have the ones that are going through different therapies and, and treatments and interventions now that are also trying to use their voice. And so it's, I love having these conversations because I think we can get into what worked and what didn't work. Um, and yeah if it's still continuing not to work, why are we continuing to try it? And what Mm -hmm. else can we do instead? So with kind of that thought, what, um, what was school like, you know, was it, was it difficult? Were there teachers that may have noticed something? Do you go back and kind of unpack that? Yeah. So I grew up for context in a town of about a thousand to 1500 people. And it was very small, very rural, um, very, as you would say, redneck. It was in North Carolina, right in the middle of tobacco fields. Like literally we were farming towns. My, my parents both born tobacco growing up and everything. And so we were um, very much in that culture of like hunting and and all that stuff. I was not, my family was not a hunt hunters, but we were grew up around them. Um, So that's kind of the context of the schools that I was in, um, where, you know, it was kind of a poor school, not very, no, you know, magnet schools and all this stuff. It was just kind of a, here's a public school for these five or six farming towns. Everybody comes together to this one school. Um, growing up, I started out in either kindergarten or first grade when they started, um, with the advanced talents and advanced gifted program, the tag program, as it was called in my schools, Um, I was pulled out for those. So I actually had pullouts, even though I didn't think about that until right now as being like actual pullouts of, of um, school stuff. But I, um, you know, got pulled out with a few other kids and we had the, the towns and advanced gifted classes and that type of thing. Um, Or like, it wasn't even a class. It was just like, come out and do like uh, brain teasers and stuff and then go back to class randomly. Um, so it was very interesting, but, uh, so I was the shy, well, yeah, I would say probably the shy kind of quiet, but also perfectionist student. So I got all A's or all whatever it was back in kindergarten and all this stuff. I was the, 
the smart kid, like the, the quintessential, like, here's the, here's the kid who just always gets everything right. And everybody hates her. I, I got in trouble once in kindergarten. I got my name on the board once. And it was because I was talking to a kid beside me and I made a little paper uh, Pac-Man face and was biting him with it and just kind of lost myself for a minute there. Got my name on the board, freaked out, cried for like two days could not handle the fact that I had just had my name put on the board. And so I didn't get in trouble at all. The rest of kindergarten, first grade, one time got my name on the board once again, just kind of lost myself. And it continued every year. Basically either I was never in trouble or I just like randomly had this one thing that happened. And then I cried about it for two days. I remember one year in, um, I think it was like, uh, it was middle school. Cause I know I remember the, the cafeteria, um, that uh, several of us were having a contest in the lunchroom of who could talk the loudest or who could yell the loudest, uh, who could say something louder. And I was like, I'm going to win this shit. So I said, can I swear on your podcast, Kelly? Okay. I'm going to win this shit. That's basically, however, I did not swear at that point, just so you know, didn't swear until I was about 18 because I thought that was the swearing age. So anyway, back uh, back to middle school. Yes, exactly. Back to middle school. I screamed so loud in the cafeteria. My name is Sarah, because that was the phrase we were going with was my name is so-and-so. My name is, I was like, I'm going to win this. I screamed it. Teachers came running and like froze. Like, was that her? Was that this person? And I felt so bad. Now, here's where, see, here's where I should have been typecast as autistic immediately because I ended up writing an apology poem and putting it on the desks of all the teachers (laughs) because I felt so bad. And it was like, it got away from me. It slipped out. I didn't mean it. I didn't, I forgot myself. I wasn't the person that I thought I was, this ridiculous thing. So anyway, um, through school, like I said, I got in trouble, like maybe once per grade, like literally I remember every time I ever got in trouble because it was so traumatic for me to speak out and do that. Um, I remember I was in fourth grade when the no child left behind program started up and that was when everybody was sort of integrated together. I did not learn anything in fourth grade because that had been implemented and they started um, having to teach things a lot slower and started teaching things over and over. And I remember my fourth grade teacher just let me read in class all day. She just handed me, like, she said, bring in your book and read. It's okay. It's totally fine. So I literally would just sit there and read. Um, and books became sort of my way to just not be at school, not be anywhere. Um, and so, yeah, it was one of those things that was really difficult for me growing up because I was usually very quiet and very smart and getting all the good grades and being like the, you know, the brown nosing teacher's pet kind of person. That was me. I like brown nosed every teacher and was their special person. And that was how I made sure that they liked me because that's been a in my life as was very interesting for me. I did not like school, um, but I didn't know that I didn't like school until about high school when I started getting bullied more, when I started um, realizing that I just didn't want to be there. I didn't really fit in. 
I felt really odd and very weird because I had cultivated this like perfection. Um, and you can't really be cool if you are a perfectionist in high school because high school is the exact opposite and all the bad kids are the cool ones. So yeah, then I didn't know what to do with my persona and I had to try to figure out all these different personas. So I let all of the cool kids copy my homework and then I was a cool kid by proxy. So that was a sort of my journey through school. God, it's, yeah. yeah. Um, the bullying thing has come up several times when we've yes. talked to people and it's, you know, kids are mean and there's a lot yeah. too. Cause I mean, it's puberty, everyone's uncomfortable. And I think, I don't know, a lot of us may look back at high school and go, oh yeah. And I don't know. My mother would always try to tell me, well, they're just uncomfortable in their skin too. Mm-hmm. So, and okay. Yeah. That all kind of makes sense. But when there's something else there and you're able, yeah. but you're not able to actually tact it, like you don't have the, the repertoire that goes with it. You just know that something doesn't sit mm-hmm. right. Um, yeah. And you do, you start, you kind of start to play with those games of like, okay, who do I need to impress? How do I need to impress them? And right. I think it was a really good point um, and something that I know gets overlooked a lot or not talked about a lot is, mm-hmm. you know, typically it's, oh, well, if you have autism, you don't have emotions. No, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. It's, no, it's no, no. flip that script, flip the script. Like it's actually. We don't show emotions the same way that other people do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, the intensity I think is so much more impactful because like you said mm-hmm. there it's you're trying to walk on eggshells at all times because something just isn't right yeah um and I don't know and and you know feel free to to answer this mm-hmm. if you would like is um you know so when you got that diagnosis and it's like okay does does that shift that feeling or does that feeling of you know still like eh, I'm still a little bit uncomfortable in the world is like or, or is it kind of balanced So for me, it sort of made a lot of the uncomfortable and strange things make sense. I look back and realize that a lot of the things that didn't make sense to me before make sense in that context. So for me, it provided the context that I needed to sort of understand myself and understand my place in the world. And a a note on the bullying. So there weren't a lot of direct bullying toward me from peers. A lot of it was now that I look back, because I've talked to other people who have been bullied incessantly, they name their bullies, they can say these people did this and that. And then I realized, I don't know if, I mean, people bullied me, but I don't know that I wasn't bullying myself by reading them, their looks and things too. I think a lot of times I assumed people were bullying me when they were not or when they were, I I assumed that everybody hated me. And so part of it looking back now is like, there were people that said mean things. They definitely did. There were also times that I assumed that they hated me because I had that sort of need to be validated and loved and not everybody's going to provide that. Um, But actually my most intense bullying experiences came from teachers, um, specifically in my music department. Um, my band director and the um, percussion specialists were, um, I feel, not very nice and not very accommodating. Of course, nobody knew what was going on with me at the time, but I do remember people 
I remember not taking well to the way that they um, would talk to me and that kind of thing. They would be pretty not, I, I don't know that it bordered on abusive, but in my head it was right in my head at the time, it was like, they hate me so much. They're so mean. Um, they would make fun of me. You know, they would call me names. The teachers would, and then the kids would be like, Oh, okay, well the teachers are doing it. So let's do that too. Um, and, I remember that being a thing. I remember my, one of my um, band instructors, I kept asking him because I played the, the vi- I mean, the, the xylophone, of course, because who wouldn't? Um, <laughs> coolest instrument ever, right? Like xy- xylophone, marimba, vibraphone, all the, all the cool ones. Uh, so I remember he was like this, you know, world renowned or not world, but like probably country renowned or whatever xylophonist who was teaching us. And he like gave me the sheet music and was like, all right, play it. And I was like, I can read music, but I can't just sit down and sight read music. If I hear it, I can play it. And I was like, could you play it for me? And then I can know what it sounds like. And he was like, no, you've got to learn how to read. You got to know how to do this. Wouldn't play it for me. And then made fun of me the whole time because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, And then when I went to a um, competition for xylophones in the state, I was the best player. I was number two because I missed the sight reading score by like a few points, but everything else, I was like the best player in the state. So jokes on him. If he had let me do the Suzuki method, which is what violinists do, which is play it by ear and then listen and play it back, then I would have been okay. So now I realize if he had accommodated my different learning style, I would not have felt like I was a terrible person. Holy moly, the behavioral yeah. butterfly effect, man. One right? little tweak here right? and we see what yeah. happens. It would have been I, it would have been amazing. Like I would have been able to do this. I would not have felt like I was. And that's kind of a theme with me is like something ha- I, I did something slightly wrong or slightly different. I'm a terrible person. So it always crashed all the way down. That's just been kind of the way that and I've talked to a lot of other autistic people who that's very we're very uh, a lot of us are very black and white thinking. And so if I wasn't good then I must've been bad. And so it was very black and white that I'm still trying to unpack with my amazing therapist. I always encourage people. Therapy's good. Everyone should yes. be a good therapist. It I took me a long time to find a good one. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, th- again, the persistence and the seeking out and, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm able to get this information, you know, what are, how is it going to benefit? What am I going to be able to do? And it's, it's using your voice and saying like, yes. Hey, I need to be able to do it this way because this way it'll never get yeah. done. Yes. And I did not have that ability to tact what I needed at the time. I did not know how to advocate for myself. I only knew how to fawn, which was the, you know, when you have your flight, your fight, your flight, your freeze, your fawn. Mine was fawn. Mine was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Let me just do it this way. Let me just remember how bad I am and just try to do it right, you know. And I think that if somebody had empowered me to be a self-advocate, that would have changed so much in my life. And that's something that I push so hard for all of the children that I work with is advocate for yourself, is being able to tact, this is what I need, this is why I need it, and to persist with that. Uh, Because I did not have that. I was taught, I, I also grew up in a very religious family. And so I was taught to be obedient, to be, you know, to let, 
I guess, let people tell you what to do and then do it kind of thing. And so um, that was very, you know, I still struggle with the word pride. Like that's a big thing for me. Pride goeth before the fall. Right. And so being proud of myself is also something that my therapist literally has me say out loud in therapy. You did something, say that you're proud of it. And then I will cry because I'm like, ah, pride goes before a fall, you know, and, but that's one of those things. So teaching people to be proud of themselves, teaching people to be self-advocates. Some of those things are so important that if somebody had just done that with me, it probably would have been such a different path. Yeah. The being able to communicate. And I think, um, yes the, the why portion of it too. Cause this mm-hmm. is something that I've seen as kind of a trend is like, we question when kids say no, or when our clients say no, and I work mostly with adults. And so, you know, they're adults and I, I want yeah. to, you know, respect no a lot from them because right. you're an adult. Um, but we also tend to have this preconceived notion, whether or not we're aware of it of like, but they really don't know what's best for themselves. Mm-hmm. So, being, ableism. Uh-huh. Yeah. so being able to teach that why portion of like, I'm not saying no, because I just don't want to do it. I'm saying no, because mm-hmm. um, if you've heard of one of our other talks, I, I mentioned one of my clients didn't like dogs and I forgot mm. he didn't like dogs mm. and there were dogs at the dog park. And mm-hmm. once we got to that connection of like, you don't want to get out of the car because there's a dog over there and you're scared. Holy mm-hmm. shnikes, whole world opens up. He starts responding to me again. Why we've built that mm-hmm. trust kind of back together. But it's, you know, it's so difficult, especially when you're a child and you're already just learning mm-hmm. how to communicate in general. And now my body feels weird. And now I have to also explain myself to you. Yeah. There's a lot that we want. And a lot of autistic people have alexithymia, which means that we don't understand how we, um, we, we can't verbalize how we feel. So we don't understand. So for example, this morning, um, I felt sick to my stomach. This is one of the reasons why I took a nap. I mentioned before the podcast started recording that I had just woken up about 10 minutes before I started this podcast. I had a stomach ache and I thought all morning that it was because I was really anxious about writing a treatment plan later, which is a whole nother can of worms of me procrastinating. Uh, however, I was like, oh man, I'm so nervous about this. My stomach is chewing itself up and all this stuff. And then Kelly messaged me and was like, hey, I'm eating something. I'm going to be on in a few minutes. And I was like, oh, I just realized why my stomach hurts. I haven't eaten today, which is one of those things that I just don't realize. And um, I think it's anxiety when it's hunger, or I think it's hunger when it's anxiety. So a lot of times I also will overeat and I overeat to the point of um, getting, I, I don't feel full. So I also have that alexithemia part of, I feel no fullness. I feel no satisfaction when I eat. And so I will just continue to eat and eat and eat until I'm suddenly I'm like, oh, I think I'm sick. And so that also slips around. But this morning it was different, which was it was almost funny to me because I normally have it the other way around where I think I'm hungry and I'm actually anxious. And now I'm thinking I'm anxious and I'm actually just hungry. And so that's, that opens up a whole nother can of worms when you're talking about autistic children, especially who have, um, if they have that alexithemia thing going on where like, I don't know how I feel. I can't describe it. And it's like, I don't know if I'm sick. I don't know if I'm unhappy. I don't know if I 
hit my knee, but my stomach is hurting instead of my knee because it just feels, because I can't tell where the pain is, you know, all of these different things. And so that portion also comes in where we can't verbalize it because we can't tell because we don't know either. All right, guys, real quick, if you are listening for continuing education units, here is the first of your two key words. Your first word is interests. I-N-T-E-R-E-S-T-S. It's important to incorporate the learner's unique interests. And for individuals that don't have any kind of functional communication or like vocal mm-hmm. verbal, especially, let me quickly clarify, vocal verbal, that's yeah. easy to understand. Mm-hmm. It comes out as self-injury or aggression or property yes. destruction because like, I get migraines. Um, I'm thankfully mm. have been working through, but when my migraines were bad, I mean, I'm pulling on the back of my hair. I'm hitting mm-hmm. my forehead. I'm pressing into my temples and hitting all the pressure points because no. it hurts. And I've had clients that I watch that first head hit and I'm like, oh, oh, that looks Migraine. real familiar. Yep. Mm-hmm. Let's turn the lights off. Let's chill out and see if that changes anything. Mm-hmm. And that's something too that, you know, as we're trying to teach and learn, um, but going both ways on that, it's mm-hmm. try something, you know, it just, you know, yeah. make it, make a quick assumption, do a quick, you know, assessment of the environment, the context and go, okay, there's this, this, and this, they can't tell me, I'm not really sure. They might not be sure. Let me just mm-hmm. try this thing and see if it changes. And if yeah. it changes, and tell them, tell them what you're doing and say, I notice <laughs> that you're hitting your head over and over. I'm wondering if you're hurting because sometimes I hit my head when it hurts it helps me to turn the lights off. I'm going to turn the lights off. Let's see if it helps. You know, let us know what's going on. That's another thing I think that, um, you know, people, people did a, a, in my case, that wasn't that much of, um, there wasn't a lot of trying to, well, let me, let me preface it with people tried, people did the best they could. My, my parents did the best they could with the knowledge they had at the time. Um, But a lot of it was, calm down. You're okay. You don't need to cry. It's fine. It's not a big deal. Those kinds of things. Have you tried deep breathing was, was another one. Um, and so I have meltdowns. I get them. Um, I, that was another thing when I realized that I was still melting down at, you know, twenties, thirties in my age, where I was actually, when I start melting down, I start shaking my hands and then I start beating on the wall. Like that's a big, like, ah, and like hitting the walls. And then I don't think about it. And then I realize I'm like, oh, you know what? Like that definitely looks like a meltdown that I've seen from clients um, where I just start yelling and, 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 and wall beating. And um, yeah, that's one of those things where I don't know how to describe how I'm feeling except to just verbally and physically show it. Like, I can't tell you what's going on inside me, but it feels like this ah, and like hitting the wall. And so that's another thing. I think a lot of times they're trying to show us what's going on. Like, hey, you're asking me what's wrong. Let me show you. Let me slam my head. Let me clap. Let me do whatever it is. And we're like, no, stop doing that. Tell me what's wrong. Use your words. And they're like, yo, I ain't got words, first of all. Second of all, I am showing you. Showing exactly you're the one who doesn't understand. So I think that's something that I also just want people to know is that a lot of times we are trying to show you, 
we are telling you as loud as we can, usually as loud as we can, um, as you know, what is going on or what we're feeling because we don't have the words. So show your words does or use your words doesn't help in those cases because we don't always have the words. I actually had a little dude once because I said that. I mean, I I'm, I look back at a lot of things that I did early yeah. on in my career and I go, oh, yeah. Ooh, yep, that's yep. I apologize. <laughs> but yep, had one dude that he was he was done with me. And I was mm-hmm. like, use your words. And he legit just goes, no words at the yeah. top of his lungs. And I was like, oh, I yeah, I get it. We're, let's let's just chill, man. Like, yeah, okay. But I also find it, it it's yeah, it, it's so frustrating that, you know, we expect so much from people and I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, if it's our own, we're evidence-based practice, we're science. Mm-hmm. So therefore dot, dot, dot kind of deal. Um, yeah. there's, you know, it's, but it's all very personal. So, you know, I hope people take these in and they do reflect a little bit at, you know, Hey, this is what my yeah. practice used to look like. What can mm-hmm. I do now to make it better? Oh, same. I was very much in, 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 I assumed. So here's another thing. I was hardcore behavioral ABA is going to save the world and ABA is going to take these poor, broken autistic children and turn them into society's best. Like I admit, I was extremely ableist because that's kind of how I was taught. And I was like, we all have to mask to the point of detriment, right? Aren't we all masking to the point of detriment? Aren't we all suffering severely and not being able to tell people? And then that was one of the ways that once I said that and an autistic advocate person was like, no, neurotypical people don't. And I was like, oh, I'm not a neurotypical people. <laughs> so I thought I was like, I'm doing what everybody else did to me because I assume that's how the world works. And then realize, like I was teaching scripts. I loved social skills because I was like, guys, I've got all these facts and things that I've collected over the years that I'm going to teach you how to hack social skills. Right. And then I was, you know, talking to one of the other providers and they were like, how do you know all this stuff? And I was like, cause I've categorized them and put them in files in my head. And they were like, Oh, huh. Interesting. So yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't want to jump too far cause I've got a couple yeah. of bigger questions. Um, so kind of going with this in, in the shift from, you know, ABA is great, science saved the world. And then you said you had a shift to, nope, I don't, you know, we're done. This is not okay. And then you said you've kind of have reshifted again. So what is that process like? And, and I guess really explaining the difference between like, you and I were talking earlier about like, ABA is the science versus ABA is what a lot of the general world population assumes that it is versus what we actually do. So the journey that my mind has taken with behaviorism is shows me again, the way that an autistic mind thinks when I didn't realize that because it was basically ABA or no ABA. Right. And when I started out as a, as a child, as a, as a, um, I wanted to be a psychologist and I got into an ABA classroom, um, not as a, I, a behavior analyst was teaching a class in college about behavior management. And I hated ABA. I thought I was like, this is stupid. This makes no sense. This doesn't make any sense to help people with schizophrenia. It was like my main, like I was on there, like, what are you going to do? Give them an M&M for not talking about their, um, you know, schizophrenic uh, hallucinations, like went off on her. 
this is Dr. Jeannie Golden, by the way. I love you, Dr. Golden. I'm sorry about being a jerk in your class. But then, of course, I started talking to her more and she got me my first job in ABA. And then I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then I learned about the science and I was like, this is the best thing ever. And the way that I, the reason I say that this was like an autistic journey that I didn't realize I was taking at the time was because it was ABA is awful. And then it was ABA is the only thing. And then I, yes, I continued to go back and forth to vacillate between these two like extremes. Um, And so then I was like hardcore ABA was like, we're going to save the world. This is awesome. And then I started talking to autistic advocates and they were like, ABA is abuse. ABA is harmful. ABA is terrible. And these words came and I was like, "Uh oh, (laughs) that doesn't work in my little extreme thing in the camp I'm currently in. So then I started swinging the other way back again, like, oh, ABA is awful. It's terrible. Now I'm somewhere in the middle because I'm learning that there's gray. (laughs) There are gray areas, guys. Did you know that there are gray areas in life? Did not know that. That is, I'm wearing my gray sweater today to show you that there is the color called gray. And anyway, um, so yeah, I am now in camp ABA um, as a science is just a science, but we are misusing it in the field a lot, especially um, when we apply it to autistic people. And it's because our society is ableist and racist and sexist and genderist and all the ists. And we have adopted that in our practices, as have other fields. And our field specifically is focusing mainly majority on autistic people. And so the ableism part comes in there. um, And we need to reckon with that. We need to work on that. We need to fix that. Um, It's our responsibility to fix it, to kind of reckon with it, understand it and fix it and um, reduce that harm and try to make it actually helpful. So that's my gray area now that I live in. It's really tough because, you know, the science, uh, you see it across, like you see the natural Mm -hmm. occurring principles where, Mm -hmm. you know, Corvids have learned to drop nuts underneath car wheels to get, you know, food. Um, The squirrels know when I'm home or when I'm not home based on, you know, the, you know, things Mm -hmm. like that. So we, we see the natural world, but just like everybody, like you get really crappy practitioners and you get people that their values and their motivation isn't driven in ethical means. It's driven by something else, by, like you said, these, these other ists that occur in the world, whether or not they've acknowledged and not them. intentionally. Exactly. Yeah. Not, not intentionally. A lot of our field is uh, the harm that's happening is very unintentional because I do not think that most of us are like, we need to fix these broken children. I don't think that we think that explicitly. I think implicitly it has been embedded into our education, has been embedded into the practices, into our supervision, into because the world is set up that way. And I think that I mean, just like systemic racism, there's systemic ableism, there's systemic sexism. I mean, all of those are embedded into society and therefore embedded into our practices. And we have to really unpack all of that to be able to be very helpful because I think in a lot of our, my degree was in uh, my master's degree was uh, applied behavior analysis and autism. And I didn't realize I was autistic when I took those courses because none of it described me. It didn't describe me at all. It described, here's all the deficits that a five-year-old child with autism has, and this is how we fix them. And that's what it was. Uh, And so 
I think that we need more education about autism in our field. I, I don't think, I know. I know we need more education about autism in our field and from different autistic people, from Black autistic people, from Brown autistic people, from all types, older people, younger people, you know, everyone needs to be able to, you know, assign female at birth people, assign male at birth, assign male at birth. You know, you guys have talked a lot. It's awesome. But uh, cis, just, cis males, they get the, the thing. But also, I think it's important to hear from everyone. And um, yeah, I think I think hearing from people, hearing those experiences makes it less likely that we can continue to fit it in a box like we have. I fully agree. I think there's a lot of need for discussion about diagnoses in general um, mm-hmm. because, you know, it's, we diagnose people because we need to put a label on a thing mm-hmm. instead of just saying like, oh, Sarah's just kind of quirky and that's just how yeah. her brain works. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, that's in, in my mind, that's what it should be. It should just be, oh, that person works, you know, their brain thinks differently than I do. They walk a little differently mm-hmm. because of like mobility issues maybe, but um, yeah, the, the culture, especially it's, it's a lot of the Western culture um, yeah. because I know yes. I mean, there are great countries out there that are actually wonderful when it comes to caring for individuals that have a disability or neurodivergence, um, not as many as there should be, but mm-hmm. the predominant way of looking at it, like you said, is through this very like cis hetero male way of looking at things. Like mm-hmm. you look at the DSM and it was written by a bunch of white dudes. White dudes. Um, yeah. Not all American, you know, some from the Europeans mm-hmm. and there's a lot of discussion there too, but it's also, it's their interpretation of something um, mm-hmm. and what they've perceived it to look like. So this is where we can kind of jump into a little bit more specific on like those stigmas that come with it. And specifically mm-hmm. coming back to the employment side of things, because you said you battled a lot of issues mm-hmm while trying to, you know, be employed in locations and then it kind of turned your, you know, arm. I don't know what analogy I was going with there. Yeah. Forced your hand. There we go. I think it's yes, that's a good one. That works. Forced Twist your, your hand. arm, forced your hand. <laughs> Twist your hands. Like just <laughs> wring your hands. And also I'm sure caused hand wringing as I'm over <laughs> here, you know, on the couch. So so yeah, so let's kind of talk about, you know, those stigmas that come with it. And again, especially as a female, because that that lens that it gets put mm. through is so different. Yes, I had an experience at a company that I worked with, um, and it was it was a, a center, so it wasn't in home. I had started out in home for a long time, and I moved to working in a center, and um, so that was working with people, with other people, and uh, instead of just working with the autistic children. And I realized, oh, I don't work well with other people. Um, and I was a very hardline ABA at the point I had my degree, I was almost becoming a BCBA. And I thought I was smarter than the people who didn't have that degree and all that stuff. And Um, and it was because in my mind, it was, I've been educated with ABA and you have not, which was true. The center did not educate their RBTs on ABA very much at all. Like very little, it was very quintessential ABA center where you just reinforce the stuff with Cheetos and you punish them by ignoring them. And it was one of those kinds of places. And I 
sort of adopted myself, like my persona. That's kind of an occurring, a reoccurring thing where I adopt my personality based on, I find the person in the, in the environment that I think works well. And I think, okay, they look up to this person. I'm going to be this person. And so I, that's my mask. My mask is basically find the person that you want to be like and be like them as much as possible. And so um, I had adapted that. However, you can't just be another person, right? And so I also had this underlying uh, OCD problem going on at the, at the, the time. That's, that's what my diagnosis was. And um, they said you have to change diapers. And I did it for almost a year, but I couldn't because I could not handle um, touching feces or looking at feces or thinking about feces. And it was one of those things. It was like the OCD, like I was having panic attacks when a child would like, I would see them start to squat and I would be like, Oh God, Oh God. And this, like, it's nothing to do with ABA, right? It's just about being with other humans, but I couldn't do it. And they told me to find another job. They were like, if you're, if you know, you're a BCBA now, you should be able to do, you should be able to handle this. If you can't, you should probably find another job. Um, So that is where I would say the self-advocacy and the accommodation type of thing could have gone in. But I didn't know I was autistic at the time. I knew I had OCD, but in my head, like that wasn't a good enough reason to ask for accommodations because I'd been, you know, I was like, I'm not blind. I'm not deaf. I can't, I don't. I don't walk, you know, I don't use a wheelchair. That's not disability. You know, those are disabilities in my head, not the mental stuff, not the mental illnesses or the mental disorders or the mental issues or the neurodivergences as I finally figured the actual word for. And um, so those kinds of issues sort of came up and the stigmas of, wow, you're really like, hardlining these ABA things like we would have conversations and somebody would be like wow that seems kind of extreme and I was like well according to so and so in 2018 blah 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 you know and like quote articles at them because that's how my brain works and um now I've rewritten it entirely it's great um now I don't care (laughs) anymore and I'm like yeah you're totally right I'm sure you're good but yeah I think I think if I had been able to speak up for myself and that that's sort of my underlying theme of the day, if I'd been able to speak up for myself and knew how to tact what I needed, I would have had such a different type of um, experience. And uh, not to say that the people would have responded the way that they should have in any of the cases that I've talked about today. But I think that I hopefully would have been able to uh, make some changes that would have helped. And hopefully help shape them instead of leaving them and starting my own company that's very disability friendly. Yeah. Um, There's two parts of that that I want to touch on. So one is like, you know, what are some ways that we can teach and empower like the clients Mm -hmm. that we're currently working with? Like I work with adults. um, And, you know, it's, it's really tough for some of them. And especially when I have ones Mm -hmm. that, you know, I get referrals because, well, they're being sassy and I'm like, I'm sorry, I am 37 years old. I need a referral then if we're Mm going to be doing this, like that's just, and and so, you know, things like that. So how Mm -hmm. can we provide those opportunities to let them have their voice? And then on the other side, what can we do as practitioners, caregivers, just people in the community that when that person does advocate, what is a better recommendation on how to handle that? Yeah. So um, 
the way that I teach self-advocacy, I start young. I model self-advocacy to my clients all the time. First of all, that's one of the, the big things that I do. I show them that I have boundaries and that I have, you know, weaknesses and that I have tiredness and things. I'll say, I am, I did not feel good today. I had a bad day. I did not, I did not wake up very well. I'm very cranky. Let's play a game. And they'll be like, oh, you're like, not, no work. And I'm like, yeah, no work, bro. None today. I'm not feeling it. And then I've had those same clients will be like, I don't want to do work today. And I'm like, bro, awesome. There you go. There was self-advocacy. I taught the one thing I needed to teach today. We're going to play a game. And so, you know, those kinds of things, I model it first. And I think modeling is such a big, a big part of this is showing them that you're allowed to do that because I think in our field, in a lot of professional fields, we have, we try to be these like strong, uncaring, unfeeling robots almost where it's like, we're the professional and you're the the person and we're teaching all these things. But I'm like, show them that like everybody gets tired or everybody has feelings and crankiness. Um, Naida in the chat say modeling is so powerful. I agree. And a lot of people will say, oh, well, autistic people don't have imitation skills. So that's not going to work. And I can tell you right now, well, most of us have the skills. We just don't care to show you because we don't really, uh, you know, want to touch our nose when you touch your nose and that kind of thing. And so if you if you model the skill, it will happen. I have seen it over and over and over. Um, I see, you know, the modeling where like I have a client who is very one of the little ones. They're very they like human skin or like contact, they like to rub bellies, they like to rub backs, they like to rub bases, right? And I say very clearly to this child who was like three, okay? So I'm like, yes, I'm good if you touch my face. I'm good if you touch my arms. I wear, uh, I wear, uh, you know, the cold shoulder shirts, like the ones with the little cutouts on the shoulders. I wear those to his house every time because I'm like, my shoulders, go ahead and kiss them. I don't care. That's cute. Whatever. I'll t- Once you're older, don't kiss people's shoulders. But right now you're three. Fine. Whatever. And, and I've said, this is my boundary. You're allowed to do this. Um, but he goes, goes to lift up my shirt to touch my belly. And I'm like, no, I don't like that. But you can touch my hand. You can touch my shoulder. You can. And now he has, he'll touch my stomach like over my shirt and then look at me for like hey am I allowed and I'm like nope remember that's that's not something I want and he's like okay and then he goes to my shoulder or my mouth or or my hand or whatever his he likes to put his hand on my hand on his mouth that's his big thing he likes to kiss my hand but anyway so modeling that and showing here are my boundaries then they start to realize oh I wonder what my boundaries are you know their boundaries and they really find them And then you can teach them that. And so I think boundaries are so important, especially for people with disabilities, because, you know, the statistics are terrifying. You know, it's like, I think it's 80% of disabled people, um, especially women, I believe it is, especially women of color, like it it gets increasingly worse and worse as you go through all the intersectionalities um, are, are sexually abused or physically abused within their lifetime. And it's one of those things where you've, we've got to teach that self-advocacy point of we should not be hand over hand doing stuff with kids if they are not explicitly asking for that help. Like we should not be grabbing their bodies and manipulating them even to touch things or whatever, or, you know, like, 
are we going to change them? You know, when I talk about to caregivers, I'm like, tell them before you change their diaper, don't just start pulling their pants down. They need to be uncomfortable with somebody pulling their pants down if they're not being told, you know, that kind of thing. And like, mommy can do this, but nobody else can. Nobody can do this. You know, a doctor, you know, when you start preparing them to go to the doctor, the doctor can do this, this, and this. Doctors should not do this, this, and this. They shouldn't touch you here. They shouldn't touch you there. Then when they get older and they go to a gynecologist, here's the new rule about this doctor. This doctor can touch you here, but they still can't do this and this and this. So we need explicit rules for that self-advocacy as well to say, because a lot of us, we don't pick up social cues. So we don't know the rules and you have to explicitly tell us, like I said, a doctor is different different from a teacher is different from a gynecologist is different from mom is different from a person on the street and everybody has their own explicit rules that we don't always know and so modeling those and telling us those specific rules are of the utmost importance that's beautifully said thank you um so then what can we as practitioners i have a couple of like instances that flashed in my head of of Mm. one of my littles um Mm-hmm. Getting very frustrated because she was a southpaw and mm. um, her aide, instead of getting up and moving around to try mm-hmm. to help and assist because we had a lot of fine motor issues and my little friend had no real vocal verbals, um, could imitate mm-hmm. sounds and tones like nobody's yep. business, mm-hmm. but no vocal verbals and the pair across the midline. And so my little friend chomped down mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I looked at the para and I went, you were wrong. Mm-hmm. She didn't like that. Yeah. And the look of shock that I got was a little disconcerting because I was like, do you? And so, you know, when we come in contact, because we're all going to make these mistakes, we're going to violate oh, yeah. somebody's boundaries, we're going to do something. And I don't like using the word inappropriate, but we're going to do something that another yeah. person is going to find uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, so going forward, what are recommendations that we can do differently to either prevent or if we've already found ourselves in a situation that we're like, oh, mm. snap, this is going south real bad. Mm-hmm. Um, what can we do to kind of work ourselves out for prevention? Always ask, always ask before you touch a child, before you do something to a child, before you touch their things. That's another thing. Like I, we grab their toys and we mess with them. We take them out of their hands. We do a lot of things um, that can be very violating to any child, to any person, not just people with autism, but for autistic people, a lot of times we have a, a, a wider bubble than other people do because we have a lot of sensory issues. So like right here, I can feel you if you're near me versus just grabbing on and that kind of thing. So the hovering position is very scary because it's out, it's in my sensory perception and that kind of thing. And so asking and the way that I do that, um, so... I'll have, I worked, I worked with a four-year-old who's um, signing was, was trying to learn sign. That was kind of the thing that she picked was sign. She wanted to do vocal, but she couldn't get the, she had, she had a praxia, I believe. And so she was like real pissed off that she was like, okay, I'm guess I'm going to have to do sign until I can get these vocals down, whatever. Like literally, I mean, four years old, you could tell that was in her head because she would sign and be like, like, I am going to talk one day. And I'm like, girl, do what you want. But, um, she had a hard time doing the motor imitation of um, signs sometimes. And so what she would do is she would start to sign it and she would be like, oh God, and look at her hands like, girl, I don't have this fine motor skill today. And I would put my hands out and I would say, do you want me to help your hands? And she would physically lay her hands in mine and then I would do it. Sometimes I would put my hands out and she'd be like, mm, and pull away like, nope, 
we're not going to sign today because I don't feel like it and I don't want you touching me. And I was like, you know what? That's fine too. Like I understand you without your signs too, because I understand your body language because I've really gotten to know you. So I think asking every time in a way that makes sense to them, not to you, that's a big thing for me is understand their language before you try to teach them yours. That's a big, a big issue for me. And then once you've violated it, if you've messed up, you grabbed their hands, you, you forgot yourself and you went and crossed that boundary, you apologize. You tell them, I own up to it. I say, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I told this child one time, she had severe sensory stuff with leggings. And I talked to, I did this pep talk with her and we was like, we're going to try these leggings on. Cause she wanted, she wanted to wear these Panda leggings, but she was afraid the tag was going to be itchy. Like that was her big thing. And so I was like, look, if you want to do it, let's do it. I'm going to say, let's put these, let's put these, I'm going to say, put these pants on and you're going to try them on. And then we're going to party and we're going to have lots of fun. She started, I said, okay, put your pants on. Right. Once I say that in ABA land, a lot of times that girl has to have pants on. Right. Am I right about this? Whether I have to physically pull them up or whatever, I've said the demand. I cannot I have to follow through. She got about two thirds, uh, one third of the way up her leg and then completely melted down sobbing because she was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And I stopped. And then she like started hiding. From, she was like dragging away, like trying to cover her body. And I was like, you've had ABA before. They've worked on this. What did they do? And she said, they pulled the pants up. They made me do it. And I was like, take the pants off. First of all, I don't care. Take them off. We're not even going to talk about these pants anymore today. I am sorry. I did not realize that telling you to pull them all the way up was a big step for you. I I apologize. I apologize for that. And listen to me. Here's my promise. And this was the first time I ever made this promise, but this was the last, this was not the last time for every kid. Now I say this, I will never force you to do anything. And I swear to God, Kelly, this girl looked at me and she was like, you're not going to force me to do anything like you're a B like you're my BCBA. Like, I don't understand. She's just had, this, and I was like, Oh no, <laughs> you know? And it was just like this moment of like, she's hiding from me because she knows that I, she thinks that I'm going to force her to put these pants on because everyone else always has. And it was one of those moments where I like sat down and cried with her for a little while because I could do that. I show my emotions now. Um, but I was like, I'm so sorry you've gone through this. I, I like I apologized for her past therapists. I apologized for everything I've ever done in my life. I think I was like, come to Jesus moment right now. And she was and we ended up this girl ended up like her mom started sending me pictures months later um even once we stopped working of her wearing everything she ever wanted to wear because somebody trusted her enough I was like I'm not going to violate your body you put them on when you feel ready and so I think that's something that we don't do enough I don't think we apologize in this field and I, I think that it's so important that's like one of the most important things we can model for children and adults for everyone yeah it it really gets rid of that coercive power struggle of I'm Mm -hmm. better than you, holier than thou. I'm the authority figure, this dogmatic. And that's, I think we get under our head of, well, yeah, I've got the degrees. I've got the training and the certification. Mm -hmm. I know this person and I've read these articles and, you know, look at me, look at me, look at me. When in reality, like all that does is make you look like an a-hole. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And your clients are going to notice that first and foremost, because if anything, like individuals with 
disabilities, neurodivergence, autism Mm -hmm. are some of the most receptive people I've ever met. They will call you out on your bullshit too. Like they will call, like we, I, I'm still unmasking, so I don't call people on their bullshit as much, but my clients, you know, I know exactly like what I look bad today, like what looks good, what looks bad. I know if a compliment comes through, that is the best damn thing I've ever worn. And I mean, because they don't compliment me very often. And I know when they ask me, like, what's up with that? Why are you wearing that? I'm like, oh, I shouldn't wear that anymore because they understand. And they're the only ones that told me my butt looked big in this. So, yes. Thank you, small child, for your honesty. Yes. Also, I appreciate that. (laughs) I'm going to go change now. Yeah. (laughs) But it's validating. It's, you know, you've listed off these really great you know, words and phrases of like empowering and advocating, modeling, um, and this big one of teaching and just validating this person's experience, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the whole thing. And and especially with this, this girl that you were talking about, like, it, we can kind of, I'm going to get a little nerdy here. So track with me for yeah. a sec. Um, you, you know, let's look at it from like a trauma standpoint, because it definitely mm-hmm, was showing mm-hmm. as a traumatic experience. Yes. Yes. So if let's go outside the ABA language, that's, it's a trigger. That's called a it trigger. Is. And it then was. you have a traumatic behavior. Acti- it activated her trauma response. Yep. Yep. Which is pulling away, fearful, getting upset. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now what we've done, what has inadvertently happened is the phrase, put your pants on. And I'm sure like, mm-hmm. and I'm sure it probably came out because that was mm-hmm. even unintentional. I was like, oh, that came out real harsh. Put right on your now. leggings. Very yep. like. Mm-hmm. This is what we do. And. Mm-hmm that's now an SD for panic. Like, so it's yeah. one of those, like those things get CMOR. There we go. Conditions yeah. are worsening. I've not been using my technical language very often. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I promise guys. Um, <laughs> but it, it is. It's so now we have this condition thing. So now what we've got to do mm-hmm. is you have to counter condition or you recondition yeah. or you desensitize or redo something else. So mm-hmm. that apology that's sitting there with the individual, yes that's where that relationship and those reinforcing contingencies can start Mm -hmm. to develop. Whereas if we just continue to force it, or if it was like, okay, fine. Well, you don't have to wear them today, but you were completely blase or non, you know, connective with her on that. It probably Mm -hmm. would still function as trauma. Yes. And we would still have that, but instead it's going to take time. We're going to have to unpack some things now and rebuild some Mm -hmm. stuff, but like we can turn around some of these horrible experiences that people have gone through and and show that you know learning can be enjoyable mm-hmm. you know it, it should be enjoyable like you should want to go and explore the world and be curious and she wanted you know, to wear panda pants like that was the big thing pants. right you know it and and so we we do such a disservice when like you said we become the robot of like well mm-hmm. i'm the professional i don't need to show these emotions when instead like the most connection that I've had with people are ones that were vulnerable in front of me. And it's mm-hmm. like, Oh, you're a real mm-hmm. human. Yeah. Um, so taking those things into consideration is, is important and vital. Absolutely. Me. And talking about your own struggles, I think is another thing is telling the clients, like I had a client who was having issues with showering and everybody had told them like, you know, get in the shower and then you get your bag of M&Ms or whatever it is. And I sat down with them and I was like, you ever heard of like uh, bathing wipes? 
You ever heard of no rinse? You never ever heard of bird baths? You ever, you know, all these different things. My mom used to call using a washcloth a bird bath. That's what, that's what that was. Um, Like without, without a shower, just bird bathing it up. It's much Um, more appropriate than a whore's bath, which is what. Yes. Yes, (laughs) exactly. That's true. Um, But yeah, so. I'm like, and, and, you know, and the parents are like, Ooh, but that's kind of weird, isn't it? And I'm like, I haven't showered in three weeks because I had a panic attack last time I showered, um, because I tried and the water touching me just freaked me out. I use bathing wipes. I use no ranch shampoos. I use dry shampoo powder. I I use all these things. And then the parents are kind of like, Oh, you know, and I'm like, you didn't even notice, like, you don't know, you don't know what I do at home when I'm showering. It's like, you don't have to look normal. Um, you don't have to do these normal things. Toothbrushing is another, like it's teeth cleaning guys. We don't have to toothbrush. We can teeth clean. There's a lot of different ways to do that. So getting outside that, that stigma as well of like, do the typical things in life. No, do what you got to do to get by. Yeah. If it looks a little different, like we live in a, in a really cool time. Like there's Mm -hmm. so much technological advances. There's so much creativity out there and as much as I hate it, you can order things online and they magically appear at your door. And so oh, like, yes, you know, that has been a godsend for me, <laughs> but also a curse. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, you know, I, I was talking with, you know, um, you know, older clients and everything. It's like, oh yeah, well, we've been using these kind of pull-ups for the last 30 years and, mm-hmm. you know, they're just not working as well, but they feel stuck because no one's ever told them, hey, mm-hmm. we can go do something a little bit different. And so mm-hmm. here, everyone, this is your permission, get creative, you know, yeah. spend more time listening and building rapport. And that way you're meeting your learner at, at their level. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, I think it was last week we talked about, you know, going with the flow of your learner yeah. you know, instead of trying to force these things upon mm-hmm. them. Cause you know what? Change the environment. Don't change the kid. Yeah. That's what we were. That's what we're, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Okay. One more pause guys. Here is the second of your two keywords. Second word is empower. E-M-P-O-W-E-R. Empower your learner to self-advocate empower. Least to most intrusive here, guys, like Mm -hmm. least intrusive, tweak the environment. Um, You know, too often do we see this thing didn't go the way that I intended. So I'm going to do a total 180 and -hmm. just do everything completely different. And then I wonder why the learner is still confused. Yeah. Um, It's like, well, because you changed 10 things, not just one. Yeah. Yeah they're learning. So like, lower your expectations a little bit here, guys. Let's let's treat people as, you know, humans and get away from the perfectionism. Like, yeah. Yeah. I have way too much perfectionism on my own. I don't need other people to try to fix me as well. No, one ulcer was enough during Mm -hmm. school. Mm -hmm. That was, that was fun. So, okay. Well, I, I feel like we've kind of touched on all of our bases. Um, I don't know if yeah. you guys have anything that you would like to ask or put in the, the chat or have a discussion about. Um, so I'll kind of leave that open. I'm trying to see if there's anything else that I, I had on my notes. Oh, one thing that, um, and this is just kind of a random thing you mentioned with, you know, growing up in a, in a religious household and everything, and mm. um, especially in the South. So, 
there is a term called scrupulosity that I don't. Oh yeah. Oh yes. And so that's <laughs> another one. With that. Yeah. So that's another one that if people are interested, I'll make sure that I put like links to um, the alexithymia yes. and the, the fawn um, in the flight fighter freeze is I've heard a few more times recently. It's not mm-hmm. one I'm familiar with. So I'll make sure to put some links yeah. up there too. Um, but do you have any like final recommendations, words of wisdom, um, resources maybe that people can look into? You know, I always tell people, um, because the way that I learned about all of this was by listening to other autistic people. And so follow autistic people on Facebook and don't only follow ones that look like you, like follow Black, Asian, girls, boys, men, AFAB, AMAB, whatever they are, non-binary. There's a ton of non-binary people on um, Facebook that are autistic that, you know, have these unique insights as well. Just find people who are different but who also fall under that spectrum and listen to all the different experiences because you know every experience is different and um if we're just getting one view that's not enough and i'm going to emphasize listening Mm, listen yeah yeah don't comment don't 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 uh tell them that they're using the wrong language um and don't tell them about aba don't argue (laughs) no No, because it will get you nowhere. Mm -hmm. I think I talked about it once. I tried that once on Tumblr so many years ago. And yeah, it was, it's a very good learning experience um, Mm -hmm. because no one won and just looked like a jerk. Yep. So where could, if anybody wanted to find you, if you feel like sharing, where could people find you on the interwebs if they wanted to connect or reach out? I mostly do Facebook. Um, I'm Sarah Alford Hart on Facebook. You can friend me, but please um, send me a message first so that it's not, I know it's not spam. Just say like, oh, I heard you on Kelly's podcast um, or whatever. And then uh, friend me. Uh, I'm also in the Facebook group. I help admin. It's called ADR Anti-Ableism 101. And it's mostly for teaching anti-ableism to autistic or to ABA providers from autistic adults. And it's, it's not just for ABA providers. There's a ton of other people in there as well, parents and professionals and on all sorts of people. Um, and if you really like Asian ball jointed dolls, you can find me on Instagram under Annabelle's dolls. I don't really do a lot of uh, advocacy there. I just post pictures of dolls. They're really cool. <laughs> they're super cool I mean you've got some jewelry on those that I was like I used oh, to yes. have pieces I love like making jewelry for my dolls <laughs> that's my current thing y'all <laughs> see self-care has got to be in there too we've got to mm-hmm. have a balance of the science and the nerd and then we get the now my brain can turn off and I can just have fun yes so yeah so oh thank you so much this has been awesome um one last thing and then we'll really be done. But um, we talked a little bit about it with Naida last week. And one thing that I would like to do for our neurodivergent guests that come on is um, allow them to either, you know, because we can't afford to pay our guests and moments of transparency. So what we'd like to do is if you have like a charity or a fund that you would, you know, like donations to be sent to, um, let me know. And then I'll make sure that I put that out. Um, Naida, just let me know about her charity um, and work that that she wants money and donations for and it's freaking Ooh. awesome yeah the theater empowerment stuff oh yeah yes. yeah so well i always i always talk about um mariserta's uh leap institute or it's leap aba i cannot remember what it's lighthouse something i'm so sorry Mari. but <laughs> it's um they empower uh 
people who are not white to be in the ABA field to try to get this dynamic going where it's not so bland. And so um, that's like a huge thing. I think, you know, we need to have more voices everywhere. And so Mari is doing amazing work with her Leap ABA lighthouse something. That's awesome. So again, so that's make- where I would love my donations to go. Yes. Cool beans. So I'll make sure that I put that out in a follow-up email and then when it goes on awesome. the site and everything. Um, so yeah, it's just a heads up. We're releasing um, a special episode every month for our autistic voices. So today, actually, um, I released Rebecca Henderson's episode. Um, so Thanks. if you want to give that a listen, um, real interesting to listen to someone who's so many years younger than me um, <laughs> and has lived so many more lives and has overcome a lot too. Um, so I, I appreciate everybody being vulnerable and brave um, and and trusting of this space. So yeah, because I, I think this is a good learning opportunity. Um, and hopefully we'll start seeing a shift, you know, mm-hmm. If not in our fields, then maybe it just in culture, in society, in yes. know, the communities that we're in, because it needs to be a global impact. So, all right. I agree. I'm going to throw super fast for you in Z chat, and you'll still get an email too about how to CEs if you want. Otherwise, you can donate and or donate uh, to Leap, and I will send that in the email once mm. we get more things. But yeah. Enjoy your Friday, everyone. This has been beautiful. I'm going to go, 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 get ready to run. Oh. Have fun. <laughs> it will be fun. It will be fun. So It'll be fun. You guys are awesome. I love you all. Be kind to each other. Be good humans. And I'll see you guys later. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this adventure of the Atypical Behavior Analyst. Check out the website, atypicalba.com, for more episodes, references, and to purchase CEUs. To stay up to date, like and follow us on social media. Just search Atypical Behavior Analyst. If you like the show, please rate and leave us a review. And if you want to support the show but don't need CEUs, you can help by clicking the Buy Us a Coffee link in the show notes. So until next time, listeners, grab your towel, keep exploring, and we'll see you in the fringes. Oh man, I am so stoked that you stuck around. This is an awesome talk that's coming up. So here's a quick preview of episode 39. See you soon. Yeah, I think um, one of one of my favorite ways of addressing this actually comes from a movie that people wouldn't expect like wisdom to have come from, but um, it's a Jay and Silent Bob film, Dogma. Um, but uh, there is a character in there, um, Rufus, uh, the 13th apostle. Uh, but he says uh, uh, people, um, or he says he prefers ideas to beliefs because people are willing to die over a belief and they're never willing to take in new information. But ideas are always open to new information and can allow you to grow. Like, Like, oh, let's have ideas, not beliefs. Like, (laughs) I love that.